The following audio is from Potomac Heights Baptist Church, located in Indian Head, Maryland. More information about Potomac Heights Baptist Church is available at www.phbc.com. Potomac Heights Baptist Church exists to glorify God and to make Christ known to the ends of the world by helping one another become more like Jesus. It is our hope that you will prayerfully listen to this sermon audio. If you have a Bible with you this morning, I hope you do. I invite you to open up with me to the book of 1 Samuel as we continue our journey through that book. We're in chapter 14 this morning. Um, I've titled this morning's message, Whom Shall I Fear? Whom Shall I Fear? Can't, Never, Could. If I heard that expression, I heard somebody laugh, so I guess you heard it like I did. I heard it a thousand times growing up. Here, here's how it would normally play out in my household. I, I, would get, I would get discouraged about something. I was trying something new usually, and I would tell my mom and dad, I, I just can't do it. And they would reply, can't, never, could. What they meant by that expression was that if you start out with a defeatist attitude about your inability to do something, then there's little to no chance that you'll ever accomplish your goal. You, you've got to believe. You, you've got to have some faith. Let me, let me illustrate with a story. Uh, most of you know I'm a golfer. I enjoy um, getting out and chasing that ball around the golf course. I remember a time back in my hometown of Sumter, South Carolina. Would have been, this would have been sometime in the mid-1980s. Um, I was playing on the golf course where I basically learned how to play. And on this particular occasion, I was golfing with a female friend of mine named Mary. And no, this wasn't my future wife, Mary. This was another Mary, um, just a friend, always only a friend. Um, so we were playing golf together. Um, at this point in my golfing life, if you will, I'd been playing for a couple of years. I wasn't any good at all. Um, I was at the point in my golfing life where if I came to a hole that had like a water hazard on it where you, where you might lose your golf ball, I would reach in my bag and get the oldest, nastiest golf ball I could find and use that ball because in my mind there was a good chance I'm about to lose it in that water and no need to lose a, a nice new golf ball, right? And so if you play, if you play golf at all, you, you know you've been at that point or maybe you're still at that point, no judgment, okay? Um, and so it's, it's okay if you're at that point in your golf. Uh, but for Mary on this particular day, this was her first time playing golf ever. She just thought it would be fun, so she decided to join me. And we're playing the back nine, uh, of course, it's, it's the second half of the golf course. And for the record, Mary did have fun, but she played very much as you would expect any first-time golfer to play. Um, and so toward the end of the back nine, we're about to, uh, we're, we're playing rather slowly, and we're about to let a, a, another single player play through our group, uh, but since it was near the end of the round, he says, hey, can I just join you guys uh, so I can enjoy your company? And we said, Ab absolutely, sure, join us. He, he was much better than either of us. We get to the last hole of the golf course. It's the 18th, 18th hole, a fairly short par three uh, with a water hazard. Um, well, it was all water hazard, okay? There, were, there, was the, there were the teen grounds, there was the green, and then there was nothing but water between the teeing grounds and the green. It was, it was exactly the type of hole where I would pull out my oldest, nastiest golf ball and use that. And so before Mary even tried to swing, to my shame, I told her, I said, you know, Mary, instead of just losing a ball in the water, maybe you ought to just, we just walk around the other side and you can drop next to the green and, and play from there. Again, tell her, before she even had a chance to swing, I told her this. 
But the gentleman that we had invited to join us, um, he told us, no, no, don't do that. He said, I think you can do it. I think you can hit the ball over the water. Now, meanwhile, in my mind, you know, I had just played eight other holes with Mary, and she hadn't hit a single shot, not one shot long enough in the air that would have carried this water hazard. And so I was a bit skeptical, but I kept my mouth shut. And so she teed up her golf ball, took out a three-wood. Now, it's a short, shortish par three. It's only like a 110-yard carry, okay? So three-wood was plenty of uh, club. She took her swing. I can still remember it. She took her swing. That ball popped straight up in the air, going straight, really high. And wouldn't you know it, that ball landed right in the middle of the green. I mean, just a perfect tee shot into the green. And I, I was so happy for Mary. We all gave her high fives on the tee. But on that day, I learned a valuable lesson. That if you don't have at least the faith to try something, you'll never accomplish your goals. I mean, Mary lived that out for me on the tee box that day, on that 18th tee box. And now to this day, to this day, I never, underscore never, I never use an old golf ball whenever, whenever I'm facing a, a difficult tee shot. To this day, I will, I will, if anything, go into my bag and get out a brand spanking new golf ball when I'm facing a difficult tee shot. Because it tells me something to look at that brand new ball before I hit it, that if I believe I can do this, then I'm going to be able to do it. And because in golf, perhaps more than any other sport that I've played, it has to be won in the mind before it's ever won on the golf course. You have to believe. You, you, to use the brain, you've got to have faith. Because can't, never could. Now, I share that story today because in our text today, we're going to see an example of the importance of faith. The importance of believing and so if you're in first or first excuse me, first Samuel chapter 14, say amen. amen. All right, let's read. We're just going to read the first uh, part of chapter 14, uh, verses 1 through 23. So follow along with me as I read, please. It says, One day Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah, in the pomegranate cave at Migron. The people who were with him were about 600 men, including Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh, wearing an ephod. And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag, on the one side, and a rocky crag on the other side. The name of the one was Bazaz, and the name of the other, Sena. And one crag rose on the north in the front of Michmash, and the other on the south in front of Geba. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And his armor bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. Then Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over to the men, and we will show ourselves to them. If they say to us, Wait until we come to you, then we shall stand still in our place, and we will not go up to them. 
But if they say, Come up to us, then we will go up, for the Lord has given them into our hand, and this shall be a sign to us. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines, and the Philistines said, Look, Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden themselves. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, Come up to us and we will show you a thing. And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet and his armor bearer after him. And they fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer killed them after him. At that first strike, which Jonathan and his armor bearer made, killed about 20 men within, as it were, half a furrow's length in an acre of land. And there was a panic in the camp, in the field, and among all the people. The garrison and even the raiders trembled. The earth quaked, and it became a very great panic. And the watchmen of Saul and Gibeah of Benjamin looked, and behold, the multitude was dispersing here and there. Then Saul said to the people who were with him, Count and see who has gone from us. And when they had counted, behold, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. So Saul said to Hijah, Bring the ark of God here. For the ark of God went at that time with the people of Israel. Now while Saul was talking to the priest, the tumult of the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, Withdraw your hand. Then Saul and all the people who were with him, rallied and went to the battle. And behold, every Philistine sword was against his fellow. And there was very great confusion. Now the Hebrews, who had been with the Philistines before that time, and who had gone up with them into the camp, even they also turned to be with the Israelites, who were with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, when all the men of Israel, who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were fleeing, they too followed hard after them in battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle passed beyond Beth Avon. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this time to be together. We thank you, Father, for your word. Lord, your your word is living and active and sharper than any two edged sword. And so we pray now in the reading of this word, events that happened three thousand years ago. Father, that you would teach us who we're to be as we consider your word. That, we would, that you would show us the work that you do, even among us, even to this day. And Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, my central idea for this morning's message is we must have faith in God. We must have faith in God. And I'm going to have five points from this passage this morning first point is this. Saul and Jonathan, their faith contrasted. Saul and Jonathan, their faith contrasted. We'll see this in verses 1 through 3, but we need to remember that chapter 14, not just in the order that it follows after chapter 13, but also chronologically speaking. So in time, space, history, uh, chapter 14 is following right on the tails of chapter 13. And chapter 13 ended last week with the people of Israel basically having no weapons. Only Saul and his son Jonathan have swords and spears. Everyone else is having their, they're they're having their farming utensils sharpened for war. 
And in chapter 13, we also learn that the Israelites, they're facing an overwhelming army from their nemesis, the Philistines. And one garrison, just one garrison of this Philistine army has made camp at Michmash. And now in chapter 14, Jonathan says to his armor bearer, this is in verse 1, follow with me there. He says, come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. Presumably, Jonathan is still at Geba. That's where we last saw him in chapter 13. Geba is just a, just a hair over a mile away from Michmash. But now Jonathan is basically saying to his armor bearer, let's, let's narrow that gap between us and the Philistines. You know, we're about a mile away right now. Let's, let's go right up to them. Let's narrow that gap effectively to zero. Let's enter into the Philistine camp. It's a bold move. And who is Jonathan going to take with him? Just his armor bearer. No one else. In fact, he's not even going to tell his dad that he's going. It's going to be these two men against an entire garrison of the Philistines. Now, beloved, that takes courage. That takes guts. But more importantly, that takes faith. And beloved, this is the same type of faith that we'll read about in just a few chapters. When we get into chapter 17, David will take on the Philistine giant Goliath all by himself. Because without faith, it's impossible to please God. And as we'll see in just a moment, Jonathan, isn't, he's not planning a sneak attack when he tells his armor, let's, let's go over there. He intends for the Philistines to see him coming. Actually, being seen is a part of his plan. This, beloved, is the faith of Jonathan. Meanwhile, where do we find Saul? When we last saw Saul in chapter 13, he too was at Geba, a little over a mile away from Michmash. But where is he now? We, we know from verse 2 that Saul has retreated all the way to the outskirts of Gibeah. He's now more than four miles away from the battle. He's four miles away from Michmash. And Saul is sitting peacefully under a pomegranate tree, as some of your translations have it. Other translations, my translation has a pomegranate, the pomegranate cave, uh, probably named so because it was surrounded by pomegranate trees. Um, but either way, Saul is far removed from danger. He is in, he's sitting back, not worried about a thing. And not only that, he has with him his entire 600-man fighting force that he had at the end of chapter 13. In addition to his fighting force, he has a priest, Ahijah, with him. Ahijah would be the great-grandson of Eli, who we read about earlier in, in 1 Samuel. So to recap, Jonathan's putting his life on the line. He's closing the gap between himself and the Philistines. While Saul is sitting securely by the pomegranate cave, widening his gap between himself and the Philistines. One man is a picture of immense faith. The other, less so. I'll let you judge which is which. Now to point number two. In point number two, we see faith demonstrated. Faith demonstrated. We pick up in verse four with Jonathan and his armor bearer. They're, they're making their way, it says, within the passes as they go over to the Philistines. 
these passes, by the way, they would refer to mountainous passes because this this part of Israel is particularly mountainous. In fact, this part of Israel has some of the highest mountains in all of Israel are found right here. Now, to be clear, we're not talking anything like the Rocky Mountains or anything like that, but we are talking about elevations sometimes in excess of a thousand meters. And so this isn't easy climbing territory. We'll see in a few verses that at times they're climbing, Jonathan and his armor bearer, on all fours, they're climbing hands and feet to get up the slope. Beloved, here's the point. Faith isn't for the faint of heart. Perhaps the Lord has called you to respond to something and and you're trying to respond in faith, but it's been difficult for you. There have been times when you wondered to yourself if you're ever going to make it. Will you be able to endure Demonstrating faith isn't always easy. The Bible tells us that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. But nowhere does the Bible tell us that faith is easy. Let me share with you an illustration. Perhaps you've been convicted of your own personal sin. And you realize a fresh you realize that you need to be rescued from yourself. And so here you sit today in this room, or perhaps you're watching via live stream, and you're listening to this guy tell you, or get ready to tell you, that the answer to your sin problem is a man named Jesus. This Jesus came and lived the life that we weren't able to live, we weren't capable of living. He lived a sinless life. Then He was crucified. That is, He was killed. And He did so willingly. He he willingly gave His life so that He could pay the penalty that we owe for our sin. And then on the third day after His death, the Father gave Jesus life. God raised Jesus from the dead. And so here I stand today telling you that you need to have faith in that Jesus. You need to trust that Jesus so that He can take the penalty for your sin. But hear me well. I am not saying that faith in Jesus is easy. It's not. Far from it. Friends, there will be attacks from the outside. If if you're going to try to be bold for your faith, there's a good chance that you will be mocked for your faith. People will, will refer to your faith as a crutch. They'll say, well, you reserve to faith because you're actually a weak person. And there will be attacks from the inside as well. From, from within yourself. Some days you may get up and you wonder, is this all, is it really all true? And you'll question your own faith. It'll be like the devil when he was tempting Adam and Eve in the garden. You know, did God really say? And those questions will ring in your mind. Beloved, faith isn't easy. But it wasn't meant to be easy. It was meant to be demonstrated. Jonathan and his armor bearer demonstrate their faith by resolving once again to go up to the Philistine. Now remember, they're already on their way there. They're already making their way through the rocky crags. They're facing these obstacles all around them. And so they resolve once again to say, we're going to go to the Philistines. Follow with me. Look with me in verse 6, please. Verse 6. Excuse me. Jonathan says, come. He's saying this to his armor bearer. Come, let us go to the garrison of these uncircumcised. Now, if you're following along, in the day, he's already said that, right? 
He said that back in verse 1. This time, instead of saying Philistines, he uses a derogatory slur. He calls them those uncircumcised. All, all he means by that is he's saying that these people, they're not part of God's covenant people. But he's saying the same thing. Let's get up. Let's go over there. And then Jonathan says what I think is probably the most important thing or one of the most important things in this entire chapter. Pay attention to this. Here at the end of verse 6, he says this. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. I was meditating on that this week. I thought, what does he mean by it may be that the Lord will work for us? How does maybe correspond to faith? Is his faith failing? Is his faith faltering as he's getting closer to the Philistines? Is he, like, is he beginning to doubt? Is he losing his faith? I don't think so. I don't think that's what's happening. I think this is actually where his faith shines the brightest. Let, let's consider just the end of that verse for just a moment. End of verse 6. Jonathan says, For nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Beloved, this is His faith on display. He says, nothing, nothing can hinder the Lord from saving. Jonathan has absolute faith in God's ability to save. He knows even that God will save, whether by many or by few. But he adds to that comment, and this is so important. He adds to that comment, he says that it may be, just may be, the Lord is going to work through him and his armor bearer to bring that victory. Maybe. Then again, maybe not. But the Lord is going to save. In other words, Jonathan saying that the Lord may choose to save in another way. Jonathan is recognizing at this moment that he and his armor bearer may be marching on toward their deaths. But that's not going to stop him from marching onward because he knows that God will save. And God may choose to use him and his armor bearer in the process. Oh, what tremendous faith! Do we see this type of faith anywhere else in the Bible? We do, don't we? We, we see it in the book of Daniel. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They're told to bow down to the statue and they refuse. They say, I'm not going to do it. This gets Nebuchadnezzar really mad and so he heats up the furnace so they can be thrown in the furnace and three men respond by saying, and I, I paraphrase here, but they say to Nebuchadnezzar, you know, God is capable of rescuing us from that fire. But even if he doesn't, we're not going to bow down to that statue. That's tremendous faith. And wouldn't you know it? God does rescue them from the fire, doesn't he? But God doesn't always rescue from the fire, does he? The Bible and church history are full of names of people who weren't rescued by the fire. We know the names of people like John the Baptist, Stephen, James, Peter, Paul, all of them in the Bible, Polycarp, first century, Justin Martyr, Cyprian, Jan Hus, William Tyndall, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Jim Elliott, Nate Saint, 
And, beloved, I could go on and on and on with other names of people who were martyred for their faith. Here's my point. Maybe you have faith that God is going to rescue you from some trial you're facing right now. Whatever trial that might be. I'm not trying to define your trial, but whatever trial that might be. And you believe that God is going to bring you through your, your trial. And so let me say this up front. If you're a Christian, if you're, if you're in Christ today, then God will 100% bring you through your trial. He will 100% deliver you from it. But He may ultimately bring you through your trial by bringing you into glory. He may deliver you from your trial by taking you out of this world and bringing you into the next. That might be how He chooses to deliver you through your trial. That's where Jonathan was. He was, I'm in the midst of a trial. I'm, in the, I'm facing difficulty. But even if this leads to my death, God will deliver. Beloved, there are no 100% ironclad promises that God will deliver us from trials we face in this world while we're still in the world. There are no promises to that. Now, praise God, He, he can and He does sometimes do just that. Sometimes He will deliver us while we're still in the world, but not all of the time. And so we need to have this attitude of Jonathan. We need to recognize that God is absolutely capable of doing anything He wishes to do. But we ought not for a moment to presume that God will deliver us while we're in this world. Oh, He will deliver us again. Deliverance will happen. But it just might happen as we transition into the next life. I don't say all of that, by the way, so that we might lose our hope in this world. We ought, to, we ought to still hope in this world. But I say that so that our hope in God is rightly ordered. That ultimately we're hoping in God. Now point number three. Point number two is the longest of the points, so we're on the downhill slide now. Point number three. The outworking of faith. Beginning in verse 9, Jonathan devises a plan to understand the will of the Lord as, he's, as he, he's seeking to live out his faith. And what Jonathan is about to propose in our passage today is very similar to what Gideon does with his fleece. If, you, if you're unfamiliar with that passage, you can read about it in Judges chapter 6. But just, just a, a few details to, to rattle your brain. If, if, you, if you know, Gideon lays out this wool fleece. Um, and he says, you know, if, if tomorrow... If the fleece is wet, but the ground all around the fleece is dry, then I know the Lord is in this. And so he wakes up in the morning and what's happened? The, the fleece is wet and the ground is dry. And he says, all right, let me, let me try this again, but we're going to do it the opposite. He says, this time, if the fleece is dry, but the ground around it is wet, then I know that the Lord is in it. And sure enough, it happens just that. Well, what Jonathan is doing in our text today is what Gideon was doing then. In verses 8 and following, he tells his armor bearer, and again, I'm paraphrasing him. He tells his armor bearer that if the Philistines see it, when they see us, if they say, you know, you wait there and we're going to come to you, he says, then we're not going to go up into the camp. But if they say, come up to us, Jonathan says, then we'll know that the Lord has already given them into our hands. So they make themselves known to the Philistines. The Philistines see them. And then the Philistines invite those two Israelites into their camp. But I want us to see the faith of Jonathan. Look, look with me there in the text at the end of verse 12. The latter half of verse 12. It says, Jonathan, so they're, they're being invited into the, they're not even in the camp yet when he says this. And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, come up after me for the Lord has 
given them into the hand of Israel. Before the first spear is thrown, before the first sword is drawn, Jonathan is already declaring victory over the Philistines. In his mind, they have already lost. Now that's pretty gutsy, right? Remember, there's just two of them. Count them. Two. Two of them against an entire garrison of the Philistines. And Jonathan is already declaring victory. That is faith on display. And so they crawl up in verse 13 on their hands and feet. And we're told that they, meaning the Philistines, they fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer killed them after him. At that first strike, Jonathan and his armor bearer kill about 20 men. Which leads then in verse 15 to a panic in the camp. Panic causes the Philistines to tremble. And the Lord sends an earthquake, which causes then an even greater panic in the camp. What we see happening here in these verses is the outworking of Jonathan's and his armor bearer's faith. It's not just Jonathan's faith. Remember, his armor bearer said to him, you know, you do whatever you wish. I am with you, heart and soul. I'm like, I'm, he, his armor bearer, I, I'm all in. I have the same faith that you do. And so their faith, this is the outworking of their faith. Now to point number four. Faith as an afterthought. So we, we were introduced to Saul at the beginning of the chapter, but he hasn't made an appearance again. Meanwhile, Saul and his men, they're, they're still a safe distance away from the fighting, and Saul does have some watchmen stationed closer to the fighting. These watchmen look and they see the panic that's happening in the camp of the Philistines. That's verse 16. And in verse 17, word gets back to Saul about this panic, which causes Saul, as, as any leader, it causes them to wonder, you know, what's, what started all the panic in the camp? And he wants to find out if anybody's missing. Like, did, did somebody from the camp go and start this panic? And so that's when they do a roll call. And it turns out that Jonathan and his armor bearer are missing. So in verse 18, Saul calls for the priest, Ahijah. This is not calling for the priest necessarily to pray for him, that... that the priest would have served as a military advisor to the king. And so Saul asked for the Ark of the Covenant to be brought. The Ark of the Covenant, of course, representing the very presence of God. And with all of this happening, all of this happening, if you will, in, in Gibeah, we're told in verse 19 that back at Michmash, the tumult of the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. And so instead of listening to the advice of the priest, he tells the priest, withdraw your hand. Beloved, Saul should have been seeking advice from the priest, but he decides to go it on his own. One commentary I read about this passage said this about Saul. It said, quote, Saul is a person who prays when he should act and acts when he should pray. Such inconsistency was one of Saul's characteristics. But it's only now, or we might even say finally now, when Saul decides to act. They rally, they go into the battle, but faith at this point is almost an afterthought. The battle's already been won. We're told that every Philistine sword was against his fellow. In other words, the panic and confusion is so great in the camp that the Philistines are killing one another. And there's... The text says a very great confusion in the Philistine camp. And so as it turns out, Saul's faith is an afterthought. And there's not really much faith in Saul's faith. Faith. Now to our final point. So I want us to see the after effects of faith. 
want to focus just on one sentence here in this final point. First, first half of verse 23. Look there with me, please. It says, So the Lord saved Israel that day. Uh, when we were children, at least when I was a child, we used to you know, ask silly questions you know, like, what came first, the chicken or the egg? Right? It's, it's fun listening to children try to uh, reason their way through that question. Uh, the answer to that, by the way, is God spoke and He created a fully grown chicken who was then able to lay an egg. Um, that's another. That's that's another day. Um, but why do I why do I bring up the chicken and the egg? If verse twenty three weren't here in this passage, we may have been left to ask ourselves who really defeated the Philistines. Was it Jonathan and his armor bearer? Was was it their tremendous faith that defeated the Philistine? Is is the moral lesson for this passage be more like Jonathan? Or maybe was it Saul and his 600 men joining the battle? Albeit late, but they joined the battle. And are they the ones that allowed the Israelites to win? Or, you know, or was it perhaps the Philistines beating themselves, killing themselves in their own confusion? You know, we, could, we could make a valid argument for any of those points, but the answer is this. God defeated the Philistines. God did it. God used Jonathan and his armor bearer, but God is the one who defeated the Philistines. God used Saul and his 600-man army, but God is the one who defeated the Philistines. The Philistines fought against themselves and killed one another in all their confusion, but God is still the one who actually defeats the Philistines. Beloved, God saved His people. And I want you to know that God still saves His people. Let me ask you this question. If you're a Christian today, so to those of you who are Christians today, why are you a Christian? Why are you a Christian? You may instinctly, instinctually want to remember a, the particular person, like this person shared Christ with me, and because this person shared Christ with me, I responded. Or you may instinctually remember a whole group of people, you know, parents, grandparents, pastors, whatever, Sunday school teachers, and these people... Uh, were so influential in your life pointing you to Jesus. Or then again, you you might remember the time when you prayed a prayer and you asked Jesus into your heart. Beloved, none of those instincts are wrong per se, but they're all misleading. Because when we're asked why we're a Christian, if we answer with anything less than God saved me, God rescued me, then we're doing a disservice to the Gospel. As important as those individuals in our lives were who pointed us to Jesus, and they are important, and as important as your personal decision was to trust in Jesus, and beloved, that was an important decision, I want you to know it all starts with God. God is the one who calls us out of light and into darkness. And friends, He might be doing that for some of you even right now. Maybe today He's calling you out of darkness and into light. Maybe it's been over the course of the last several weeks or even several months or perhaps even several years He's been calling you to Himself. However long He's been calling you, let me encourage you today that if He's calling you, don't harden your heart against Him. Respond to Him in faith. And if you do that today, I would be delighted. I would love for you to tell me about it after the service. 
so that I can rejoice with you. Let's pray together. Father, we want to take just a brief time right now to meditate and to think about how You're speaking to us through Your Word. With a hundred of us here in this room or so people in this room, you, you may be speaking in a hundred different ways to different people. But Father, we know that Your Word is living and active. So Father, for those who are already in Christ, who, who need to be encouraged in their faith, to trust You every step of the way. Father, may, may You encourage us when our faith wearies. May You encourage us to follow after You, to be strong in the Lord. Father, there are perhaps others here today in just the the number of people we have here, there's undoubtedly some, even one here today who's, who has yet to trust in Christ. Father, there may be many here who have never trusted in Christ. Or perhaps they're full of questions right now about what does that mean? Knowing that faith in Christ is not easy but nevertheless, you might be calling them to yourself. Father, if, if they have questions about it, that they would reach out to me or perhaps a family member they're here with, a friend that invited them, that they could talk to that individual and say, I need to know more. I want to know more about what does it mean to genuinely trust in Christ. Father, it's the most important decision any of us will ever make. It has eternal, eternal ramifications. Father, help. Help those to whom You're speaking now to make wise decisions and to, to, to trust in You through faith. Lord, we thank You and we love You. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for taking time to listen to this sermon audio from Potomac Heights Baptist Church. Please feel free to make copies of this audio to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission from Potomac Heights Baptist Church.